0: Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to the podcast Farming That Doesn't Cost the Earth, featuring Charles Massey and Bruce Pascoe in conversation with Peter Harrison, recorded live at the 2017 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com.
1: This session is called Farming That Doesn't Cost the Earth, and it's going to feature two wonderful books really for me um, uh, books that gave me a deeper insight and a new way of understanding what it is to be Australian and to live on this country um, now one brief bit of Bruce's book is in the you know in the flesh here and you can buy it and Bruce will sign it Charles has had a different relationship with the publisher I'm going to read something his book, This book is hot off the press and you won't get uh, a heavy quarto copy like I've uh, written all through, but um, they've just landed in the warehouse and so the gig this afternoon is if you buy a copy at the festival shop, it'll be sent to you, freight paid for, and what um, Charles will do is to sign a book plate for you, that when you get your book you'll have um, Charles signing it. Uh, this is a, an offer only available at this festival, so you can order and buy Charles's book, but you won't actually take the physical copy with you this afternoon. OK, so... And then the, um, the final thing I'd like to read before we start is concerning the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. Um, Byron Writers' Festival is proud to be fundraising again this year for the important work undertaken by the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. The ILF aims to address literacy rates in communities where often only two out of ten children can read and write at the basic minimum level. The Foundation's aim is to instil a lifelong love of reading in these children. So if you love reading, please make a donation in the boxes as you leave today or visit the Indigenous Literacy Foundation tent for more information about their programs. So please, that's something to bear in mind. Okay, to our distinguished guests. Bruce Pascoe, who is um, in the Hawaiian shirt at the end, uh, Bruce is the person on the stage with the beard, um, is the author, as I've said, of Dark Emu, which is an evidence-based, intensely argued account of Aboriginal agriculture and food production before European invasion. He's an Aboriginal man with Bunurong, Tasmania and Lockhart River heritage. Charles Massey is a farmer from the Monero region in southern New South Wales. In his book, The Call of the Reed Warbler, Charles explores the evidence of how we can rethink our our agricultural practice and we can move to the point where we can reject the kind of land domination, global profit basis of much of mass agricultural practice today and start to think of a way of a regenerative agricultural practice, which he'll explain to us this afternoon. Both of these men have gone and found evidence Narrative, history, and in Bruce's case, as he said to me just before, he went to the history of white explorers because that's the evidence that European Australians like to believe. They were very, very happy to dismiss the obvious evidence of millennia of Aboriginal agricultural practice. So, and to quote Malcolm Turnbull, which I don't often do, um, there's never been a more exciting time to be an Australian. If you're interested, in learning from the oldest living culture on the planet. And with that, Bruce, I'd like to begin with you because when you began the research that culminated not only in Dark Emu but also in Convincing Ground, you were told by academics that to put Aborigine and agriculture in the same sentence was
0: absurd. Could you elaborate? Well, it was a lovely afternoon tea. Um, The scones were really good. Um, the tea was hot, Uh, the people were polite, but they were all uh, white male academics and um, they told me that the essays I'd been writing about Aboriginal history were misleading and um, disturbing the education of young Australian children and that it should stop. And I I left that that meeting... um, And I was determined then that I had to find another way of telling that story, and I realised I'd have to use sources that Europeans respected, and those sources uh, are either Sir Donald Bradman, who didn't write a lot about Aboriginal history, um, or the Australian explorers. And surprisingly, uh, they wrote a great deal about Aboriginal uh, occupation of the earth, and so... I went into a bookshop on my way home in Canberra. I, I lived at Malacuta, so I was driving through Canberra. I stopped at the first bookshop I could find and I bought a copy of Sir Thomas Mitchell's Journeys into Tropical Australia. And around about page 90, I, I read a, a passage where Mitchell, being the first European into that country, rode through nine miles of stooped grain... And I knew then I I had a book because I thought if Mitchell had said it, the likelihood was that he said it again about other districts and um, that other explorers probably did as well. I I wasn't aware then how much material there was around, but when I read that word stooped and how the fellows with um, Mitchell said that it looked like an English field of harvest, uh, I knew that... What we had been told in our education was completely wrong and as I read further, I was stunned to find that uh, Beatty in Melbourne, as one of the first farmers in the district, found that all the hills around Melbourne had been terraced in the production of murnong. something I hadn't ever heard before and that uh, Sturt, was fed roast duck and cake uh, by people living in the very dead heart of Australia. Um, Australians have liked to refer to those as desert areas as the dead heart when in fact Aboriginal people were living there and were living on the fat of the land, roast duck and cake, and they dug a well uh, from which they could draw their own water. They, and he remarks on the happiness of that village. Mitchell does the same further north in Queensland. The happiness, the contentment of the people, not living poverty-stricken lives like we'd been told, but full of happiness and laughter and production. And I'm an Aboriginal man and um, I knew nothing of that. I had to be shamed by my elders into looking for my own history Because I'd gone to them wanting to know about my family. You know, can you tell me about my great-grandmother? Can you tell me about my great-grandfather? And they wouldn't. And I was deeply offended by that. And the answer to their refusal was that I knew nothing. I had to come to them with some knowledge before they could give me knowledge. And so I had to educate myself. And I've, I've been fortunate in that I come from the family I do. My mother was probably the most intelligent person I've ever met, Um, also the toughest, uh, strongest, most loving. And she engendered in me the idea that you never know. Um, If someone tells you something, don't believe it, investigate it. And she drove me. Uh, to investigation of things that uh, otherwise I, I would have accepted. And so my investigation of that side of our family's history uh, was done the hard way. It was embarrassing. It was shameful. It was hurtful. But um, it's also incredibly rich. And it's a, it's lovely for me um, to have so many people want to share that story now uh, so many non-Aboriginal people, um, because the country needs it. And, um, you know, we're going to hear other stories about what the country needs and what we can do for our country because Aboriginal people uh, believe that the earth is our mother and we should treat the earth like our mother and uh, we're not doing that at the moment. We, we have no respect for the earth. We've done some shocking things um, to the earth as a farming community um, and we're not going to be able to survive it, we know that, we know that the earth can't survive this kind of depredation um, over so many years, um, we have to change our ways and uh, so I'm I'm proud that I was forced into telling this story and I was forced into telling it and intimidated into telling it and made angry uh, enough to tell it uh, but. It's not a book of anger, yeah, it's a book of love.
1: Thank you, Bruce. Charles, um, to begin with, your book as I read it basically calls, as Bruce does too, but your book really basically says we need to reset our mindset and I'd like you to talk a little about that notion of the mechanical mind and the organic mind as you get into explaining why you came to write Call of the Reed Warbler and at the very beginning why did you choose that title? Okay. First of all, welcome, everyone. Uh, thanks for coming. Um,
2: I'll get to that second, Mick. The, okay. uh, I thought if I could just pick up on the, the title. Sure. um A farming that doesn't cost the earth. I think it's a great title. I don't know who came up with that. But I was reflecting on that and I, I thought there's three components to that. And and the first is that the story I tell in the book through a whole lot of stories uh, is there is a wonderful revolution going on uh, in broad acres of uh, farming in Australia and elsewhere that we call regenerative farming. Uh, There's a good reason you're not hearing about it and it's because some of the largest power bases in business and agribusiness, chemical business worldwide and entrenched paradigms in science, etc. Uh, don't want us to know about it so much. Uh, the second part of that title... Farming that doesn't cost the earth. This farming doesn't cost high inputs of uh, industrial fertiliser and chemical and, and fuel. So. But the third component is, is what Bruce has just been talking about and that is I don't, as I, as, as I see it in this distinct landscape, and this touches on your question about the mechanical mind in a minute, um, European farmers came to this country with that post-enlightenment scientific mind, that accident of history when they came here in the early 19th century after all those extraordinary um, cultural, you know, mental revolutions in Europe. But they brought a European mind to a landscape that A, was biogeochemically quite different to anything in Europe. It was a lot more ancient and leached. It functioned in different ways. And as I've heard Bruce say earlier, it had one of the oldest... Human cultures that have been actually managing land. It was a cultural landscape, it wasn't just this inert landscape. And um, so that's the third component. And, and what Bruce has written about, and Bill Gamage and people, is just an eye opener on um, not just that it was actually, I mean, if you think about the term, uh, I usually use the word agriculture with a hyphen, agri and culture, because it's, there it might be tillage or whatever the earth, but the cultural component. Is fundamental, and, um, um, and and that's really what's behind my story. Is that it's a totally different mind that's now being applied. And uh, so, to, to answer your second part, make the that mind that came to Australia with all the different expectations, attitude to the land, how it works, and to the Indigenous people was was that mechanical mind. Um, which saw a resource to be exploited and used and nature was a dispassionate thing that the
1: concept of an earth mother just didn't exist. <coughs> Bruce, the, the the spiritual dimension of caring for land. So to, to follow what Charles has just said and to come to, to a lot of what you describe in Dark Emu, that there is there was um, a cultural obligation on people to basically leave the place better than they found it in a way. There was a... That, that, as you mentioned earlier, if the land is your mother, you respect and you love and you care for her in that way. Why do you think European Australians, the settlers, were so determined not to allow that knowledge to get out? Because one of the things I came away from your book with was that basically to create, to justify the illegality of invasion, you had to lie about the significance and sophistication of what was here
0: before Europeans. Yeah, you had to because, as a a, a Christian nation, uh, we we arrived here as more or less a hundred percent Christian. Uh, both your mob, Irish, and the the British English, um, were really um, solidly Christian-based country, and you know, brought up as I was with the idea that thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal and yet that's exactly what Europeans did here and it goes back to uh, the, um, the Papal Bull of 1493 by uh, Pope Alexander VI in, and that was um, a reflex reaction by the church and the state to explain how Columbus could so-called discover the Americas and that Europe could take it over entirely. Uh, The Spanish to the south, the English and French to the north. And the the papal bull basically says that if you uh, arrive in a a new country because the Europeans were aware that with their ships um, and with their new knowledge of the globe that they could go anywhere on the earth and that they would find these new continents and uh, that the papal bull said if if you arrived in a continent and the people there did not know the name of Jesus Christ, not just Jesus Christ but did not know the name of Jesus Christ um, and how could they, then the European had the right to take that land and if they met resistance which was a sign of barbarism and savagery they could take the land by force and um, you know, the Europeans were pretty good at force. Vasco da Gama, uh, upon whom Michael Lunig um, has built uh, a, a lot of uh, comics, Vasco pyjamas. Um, but Vasco da Gama, when he met resistance in India, he cut the... There's a double offence here. He cut the dog the ears of dogs and cut the um, ears of humans and he sewed the dog ears onto the humans. Um, So I'm mortified for the humans, and I'm mortified for the dogs, but I'm mortified for the assumption that this could be a Christian act. This insult, this deep insult to the human and the dog um, could be seen as a, a, a a necessity of the Christian state. So all of those sort of things, you know, you would have heard the stories of... Australian farmers burying Aboriginal children neck deep in the sand and kicking their heads off. You know, th- this is our history in this country. Uh, the abuse of women uh, was worse, if you can imagine it. And, and yet we know so little about this. Um, and this is our heritage. And The European mind is something that requires some investigation because the Chinese visited here too, as did the Macassans, and they came here to trade and went away again. And sometimes uh, they took men and women with them and went back to both China and Macassar. And then next trade season for the Macassans, it was the Beche de Mer. When they came back, they'd bring those people back with them. Some of them didn't come back. Some of the Macassan men didn't return. It was a mutually agreeable trade of both things and people and yet the European mind said they had to have it and um, I tremble at the thought that I might have to write that book too because um, I'm, a, I'm a storyteller, I'm a novelist. Um, I shouldn't be writing these histories but the reason I wrote both convincing ground about the contact wars and why I wrote a dark emu is because these were histories that I had to write in order to describe what had happened to my own family. because mm. no Australian history um, had done that. Mm. And so our, our country can't grow intellectually while we read a baby story um, of, our, of our existence, of a, Australian political and public life. So we need to we need to grow as a, a nation and this changing attitude to farming is part of that changing attitude, becoming aware that we are in Australia, that we are not uh, farming on the banks of the Thames and it seems funny to think that we are at that stage still where we are deep ploughing soils that should never be deep ploughed.
1: Which is a, a perfect way then to, to come to you Charles with with some of the, the ideas behind regenerative agriculture. Um, but just one thing I'd like to pick up to follow on from Bruce. There's a beautiful story in your book. I think it's Rod Mason mm. who's a, a senior lawman um, and he his country is where your your people's property is mm. and you've always extended a welcome to him. Could you tell the story of the Currajong tree? Yes, <coughs> more than happy, uh, Um the point I meant to pick
2: up on last time was that I'm strongly of the view and experiencing it that we can't farm in a, a regenerative, not just sustainable, I don't like the word sustainable. If you look at the dictionary it means marking time, maintaining something. The, if you understand how ecosystems work in a self-organising fashion we can go on an, in, an improving plane. And. Um, so I've begun working with this senior lawman who's a local in man, which was the, um, the people that uh, occupied our region and, and um, i really finding I'm right back in kindergarten. Um, his understanding of the landscape and uh, I'm working on learning how to use fire with him. Uh, I mean, I'd, I'd uh, been fire captain at home and we had lots of fires with firebugs and uh, that's totally different to starting to use fire as a skillful agricultural agricultural tool. Anyway, about a couple of years into our relationship, um, we've got a currajong tree in, in our front garden which um, shouldn't be growing there. They're, they're a sensitive tree more out in the central west or in the lower country. We get minus 10s, 12 frosts and currajongs don't tend to like that. And Rod turned up with some ecologists. We were doing a survey, and I said to him, um, "It was just sort of an intuitive thing. What do you think it is, Karajong? I don't understand why it's here." Anyway, he went over and had a look, and it shows you how blind um, I was to uh, indigenous culture. And um, I could see him circling the tree, and then he got quite emotional, and and. Up and down the tree were long strips, and straight away he re- recognised them as being um, the fibre that Aboriginal women had pulled off, because it, it makes an incredibly strong uh, fibre for fishing and nets. <clears throat> and then we, he showed me the bowls that they'd knocked out for kulamons. And then, when we got thinking about it, a they shouldn't have been there, but the bowl of the tree, the, the, the root level was um, so high and. and Karajongs are very slow growing so it was at least four or 500 years and then he told me that um, Karajongs are a really important tree to his people and, and the old women when they came in or followed a song line or a route they would carry their favorite, the seeds of their favourite food trees and he, he said that they probably planted a grove of 10 or 15 trees because you don't just get fibre, you you know, there's food off the nuts and, and, coffee, and coffee off leaves and that sort of thing. And, um, yeah, I felt right back in kindergarten that this guy could read a landscape. And, uh, and he said, uh, he then told me the story that um, probably during the Great Glacial Maximum drought, which was, you know, I, I remember managing a five-year drought and that drought was 10,000-year drought, which is a decent drought from about 25,000 to 15,000 years ago. And that's when his people, I think he was connected to Pitachinjara people in um, sort of south of Alice Springs and they followed what they call the ice streaming through to Lake Mungo and then came across New South Wales into the Monero and that's
1: when some of that cultural flow would have occurred. Extraordinary, just extraordinary. And to stay with the extraordinary stories, I'd like now, Bruce, if you could take us all to Brewarrina and, and to the significance of Aboriginal structures in Brewarrina, both in terms of Australia but also in terms of human
0: antiquity. Yeah. I'll do that as, as long as I hear the story of the reed warbler later on. <laughs> Thank you. Is that a deal? <laughs> yes. Um, I forgot, sorry. <laughs> but Browarrina is um, uh, a place that Mitchell passed on, on his uh, journeys and he was passing villages of a thousand people a day after day in that area. The, the Aboriginal population of Australia has obviously been, been underestimated and that underestimation is probably deliberate um, to diminish the importance of uh, Aboriginal occupation of the land. But Mitchell uh, really admired th- these villages. He, he said that every house he passed was different from the other one and that you could tell the aesthetic um, sensibility of each of the inhabitants because they had um, adorned their houses and designed their houses differently and these are houses that were uh, capable of housing 20 and 30 people. They were very big. And he passed them day after day after day. And these people were um, grouping around the the Darling River, the, um, the Barwon River, and um, that group of rivers that come into what used to be called the Corners region um, of Australia. And... Those fish traps at Burrwarrina are said to be the oldest human construction on earth. Australians ought to be really surprised that I would dare to use such a word. Because what about the pyramids? People say to me, yeah, the pyramids, they're real old. They're 2,000 years old, eh? They're real old. But right beside... Uh, this district, there's another being investigated now. And the archaeologists who have been looking at this um, group of houses now know them to be the oldest collection of houses in the world. And in Dark Emu, which is only $35, I don't know how they make it for that money. Um, (laughs) But in that book, I talk about the fact that um, at Brawarana the, the people had the, the oldest human construction on earth but then, not far away, they also had the oldest village on earth and if that is the oldest collection of houses on earth, Aboriginal people just didn't invent bread, which they did, but they also invented society. And the people who lived nearby those villages can expect... A hell of a lot of French people in the next five years. This information is is going to come out uh, within three to four months, um, and we'll be, it'll be common knowledge in Australia that we invented in this country society. So you won't need to go to Texas and say to people there, look, you know, our greatest invention is Vegemite, you know, the waste product of making beer. We're very good at making beer and drinking it, but the waste product. Vegemite, mate. That's where I come from. We won't need to say that. We'll say, oh, no, look, um, we actually invented society. Uh, We actually invented bread here. Because we know these things for a fact now. Um, So we can have a different conversation in this country with each other. And for the first time, that conversation might include Aboriginal people. (coughs) Wouldn't that be a surprise, eh?
2: I better fulfil my you know, part of the bargain. I was say, you
1: better, you <laughs> cough up now on the reed warbler. That's right.
2: Uh, I'll just preface it, that um, uh, in my mistake-ridden journey of being a farmer, before the scales fell off, uh, one of the things I did, we, we got involved in sort of quite advanced breeding of a merino sheep. We, we helped evolve uh, animal welfare-friendly sheep that didn't need, the merino didn't need the skin cut off and mulesing and. And, uh, and other elements. Um, and so the clients that I was working with were, were really the early adopters, the innovators. And, um, and then I got curious because when I went and visited them, a lot of them were swinging to this new regenerative agriculture. And, and so I went back as a mature age student um, six, seven years ago and did a PhD looking at, at transformation which was really a huge flip from an industrial mind, mechanical mindset to one that was ecological. Organic mind, you call it. An an organic mind, yes. Um, The wonderful um, feminist environmental historian Caroline Merchant who wrote a book called The Death of Nature, she really talks about that. Um, And it was part of doing that PhD that, I mean, it's obvious why we've got these three days here, but how fundamental to the human psyche is story. And when you look at the latest sort of work on um, some of the cognitive work and uh, neuroscience, we're, we're hardwired for metaphor as well, which is probably what's called the, the last great evolution in the, in the humans about a quarter of a million years ago, when we what's called the symbolic revolution. And so um, I tried to build its recent book around a series of stories in you know, lay a layered journey with uh, <coughs> other elements. But one of the stories that struck me, I went and visited um, a farmer who was regenerating his farm and um, we drove past the neighbour who was flogging it out with sheep and the creek was dry and the salt was coming and the dust was blowing. And when we got to this fellow's paddock with the same creek, the lateral sides of the creek were green and the water was running. And um, I was poking around looking at the diversity that was coming and... um, and there's a little patch of reeds, sort of no more than the size of this stage. The birds had brought the seed in. And um, this is after about nine years of his regenerative efforts. And suddenly out of the reeds, this, this reed warbler sang. It's only a little bird, but it's got a beautiful call. Anyone who knows their, um their birds. And I've been a keen birdo for a long while. And it was only driving home the next day that I thought, well, what a metaphor or a symbol it was probably 130, 50 years since the Red Warbler had been in that valley. It had been flogged out and destroyed and um, I don't overuse it through the book but it became a metaphor for this regenerative process of landscape Mm. and and to pick up on some of the things, Bruce said, "I, I don't think we can farm this Australian landscape without a whole new moral, ethical, empathic in a way, spiritual approach to the landscape. It's, it's not an inert substance we extract and belt. It's something we've got to nurture and, and
1: foster the self-organising processes within. I'd like to just pick you up on that because I find that a really important notion in, in both the books, obviously. But for non... Um, I just want to digress. There's a wonderful thing you said, Bruce, in a, in a YouTube thing I watched. Bruce told an audience that there were two things he knew, that Aboriginal people weren't going away and that non-Aboriginal people weren't going away. (laughs) So that's the gig. Work it out. Um, And so so to come to that, the notions of, for non-Aboriginal people, to develop the spiritual connection that I think in my own past I've sort of thought to myself as a kind of envy of Indigenous Australians, that they're able to have a connection to land, that's a connection to self, to other to, to the metaphysics of their life. How do we, in your opinion, how do non-Aboriginal Australians start to generate that understanding and that practice? I 25 wish words a... or less. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it was an easy
2: answer, Mick. Yeah. Um, I think if, if you regard landscape and nature as some sort of inert resource that you can exploit to attract dollars from and... Uh, I mean, let's face it, uh, our earth systems now are going into the greatest crisis that's ever confronted humanity. We're into the anthrop- Anthropocene, whether we uh, we like it or not. And we don't like it because the politicians and the newspapers and everyone don't want to talk about it. But um, if, if you take that on
1: board... Um, now I've lost the train of three. What was the...? I'm interested in, in how we as Australians... Yeah, how, okay. ..how we can start to, to rethink our... Emotional yep. and spiritual connection. Yeah, I've, I've got it now. Yep.
2: Well, as I was saying, if if we don't empathise with earth and earth and its systems and nature and how it functions, um, you've got to have a heart. And, and, and if you can, if you, even and I know it's hard when ninety percent of Australians are urbanites, but it doesn't stop them from getting out into the bush and starting to understand. Um, and I see one of the great connectors uh, in starting to open up our hearts to this Australian environment is through food, uh, healthy food via healthy landscapes and uh, going into urban gardens and those sorts of things but I'm not answering a question directly because no. there's no easy answers. I think sure. the only way to do it is to start shifting our philosophical mindset about exploiting, extracting money from uh, the land when, uh, and that's the reason I mentioned the Anthropocene, I mean patently economic rationalism, pumping uh, carbon into the air through fossil capitalism, it's not only not working, it's starting to destroy us. And mm. uh, if we can all start the shift to empathise with nature, I think that the mind and the heart will
1: change from mm. that. It, it does make me think, and I think you quote it in Call of the Reed Warbler, a, a line from Les Murray, where he talks about it'll take a lot of people many centuries before they can feel at home in Australia. That's right. Yeah. It's,
2: and uh, it's to the poets, I think, that we often have to turn to because they cut through by metaphor and, and greater insight than um,
1: you know many of us prose writers as well. Indeed. Okay, I want to stay with food because the other um, extraordinary revelation for me, Bruce, in in your work and in the um, YouTube Videos I've seen of your presentations is the idea that where we conventionally now see relentless desert and unproductive land, Aboriginal people had developed an extraordinary grain belt. And you can tell me the correct factor larger than it is of the current grain belt. But could I get you to talk about that, and and also the significance in in um, uh, nutrition? of
0: some of the Aboriginal Mm. foods like yam? Mm. Um, Norman Tyndale investigated Australia. He was an American um, archaeologist, anthropologist who came out to Australia in the 70s and was virtually laughed out of the country by his fellow Australian uh, academics. But Tyndale mapped what he thought were all the areas that Aboriginal people had been seen To be harvesting grain for food. And it covers the whole of the desert regions of Australia because many of these grains were growing in sand and only needed uh, one watering uh, a year from the rain itself. And uh, so our grain belt, roughly five times as great as the current Australian wheat belt. But the interesting thing is that we're expanding that all the time because. The more we investigate it, uh, the more we find uh, Aboriginal people had been growing grain in this area. Uh, Lake Mungo does not appear uh, on that map that we have redrawn, and nor does Coopers Creek, and yet both were grain areas. So that is expanding all the time, and we need to... You know, we've got 500 cooking shows in Australia on television, radio, print media, and nobody in any one of those um, cooking shows can identify or has chosen to even think about um, the grain that saved Charles Sturt's life. What was the bread uh, that Charles Sturt was given when he was dying in Central Australia that he called the lightest and sweetest cake he'd ever eaten? We can't identify that grain. We think we know what it is. The ladies of Lake Mungo, and there's a fantastic story about those women that We don't have time to talk about today, but look up Lake Mungo women and um, there's a a YouTube thing on their investigation of their own history um, which contests the European version of it. But those women decided to harvest their own grain which grew in the pure sand of Lake Mungo and they turned that grain into flour, they turned the flour into bread and you could smell it from 300 metres away. The aroma of that flower was so beautiful, and yet we don't know in our history, we do not know uh, what that plant is. We will within two or three years. Um, my son is growing both that and panicum, and another one of the 138 plants that we know Aboriginal people took grain from to turn into flower. Uh, we will know about these plants, we don't at the moment. Are we part of the maturity of Australia? to realise that wouldn't it be a good idea if we were going to farm in Australia to farm Australian plants that have already been adapted to our climate and so don't require any more water, any more fertiliser and no pesticide. um, That will revolutionise the agriculture of the country but I I also have to emphasise population. We can do all of this stuff, we can regenerate uh, but Unless we control our population, we're going to die. And a good example of this was when I was in uh, India uh, recently and we were taken around to best practice farms in India and one of them was a place where they grow their own rice and they, because of Monsanto, everyone is trying to retain copyright of their own products. And... Um, Because Monsanto just gobble up everything, change the genome and then sell it back to you. Uh, Not as a viable seed, but as something that will grow once for you. You can't take the seed off it. You know, it's a good trick, very American. And, um, uh, you know, it's going to destroy us. But these people are trying to hold the copyright of their own rice. And so we went along there, best practice farm. You know, they sing, we sing, you know, because we had Aboriginal people there. And so they, were, they really wanted to talk about our spirits. So we we danced our eagle dance for them. Um, they, they did their dances. We were having a hell of a good time. And, you know, it was, you know, we have to admit that it was increased by the fact that the tea was alcoholic. Um, <laughs> terrific afternoon, very long. Um, but then they, they said, oh, we, we want to show you. Um, how the multiple uses of our uh, rice paddies. So they took us out there, and they they jumped into the water, and with um, you know baskets about as big as this mat that you can't see. But let me tell you know that mat's about that wide, and they were jiggling this mat in amongst the reeds um, all the time and getting fish that big, and they were part of that. We had eaten those those fish that day. And I I said to them, how often do you do this? And they said, three times a day. Imagine the psychology of the fish (laughs) Um, having that happen to them three times a day and a little tiny fish like that and and the food they took out of the rice paddies and the fish they took out of the rice paddies all tasted like mud because mud was in suspension the whole time. Everything was living on mud. And that's, you know, sorry to use the term unsustainable, but it is. And it's because there are too many people because mm. that's, that's not a, a thing that you want to keep doing forever no. because it just cannot continue. We have to change our, our way of looking at our responsibility to the earth. You know, our religions tell us that you can't interfere with the holy union between a man and a woman and whatever they do at night. You cannot interfere with that and, you know, to do so is against God's wishes well, I, if, if there's a God, and pardon my prejudice, but if there's a God, I'm sure God didn't want his work destroyed. So um, I believe that that God uh, wanted people to look after the world, his world. Mm. Mm. And, um, it's, yeah, it's never a popular thing to say, but I thought I'd say it anyway.
1: Good on you. Just, um, just, yeah, jump in. I, do, I want to acknowledge, I do want to come back as, a, as an Australian of Irish heritage um, the way you've slagged off potatoes... How many children in your family? <laughs> to, um, in, in my extended family a lot. Sadly in my own family not as many. But um, not for want of trying. Um, the, um, I do want to come back to yams and potatoes because as I heard your story about yams and potatoes, my blood rose. Um, but, James, well, I, I think there's an interesting follow-up to...
2: Uh, and what Bruce does in Dark Emu is just open up the the potential of Australian perennial grains in particular, a lot of them gluten free, adapted to our soils, adapted to the microorganisms that healthily function. But there's some really lateral developments in industrial, well, the replacement for industrial farming, where uh, farmers now in broad acres in Australia, and it's come out of the tough situations because you don't get innovation in the rich darling down soil. They've now uh, growing crops without chemical and fertiliser In amongst perennial native grasslands, at at the moment they're they're, uh, the traditional cereal varieties that they're now selecting, not to be drug addicts, but um, they're they're picking grasses that are called um, C4 grasses, which is a different type of perennial grass which goes to sleep dormant in the winter. So they're they're now sowing um, cereal varieties that uh, they graze with stock, which has an ecological impact. Um, they then harvest in the spring and then these grasses wake up. So we are now producing grain, chemical free, um, off perennial native grasslands. So it's sort of a another lateral development and uh, there's a lot of research in America at the Land Institute and Australia and Russia trying to, to grow grain off perennial grasses because all our grain
1: crops tend to be uh, shallow rooted annual weeds yeah. really. Yeah. But, and, um, and that's that thing that both of you take up—that we're actually coming into a climate um, catastrophe, uh, to, to, which I think, you know, from what I've read, that's how I view it, where current practice is a road to ruin. But it's—it's it's what's becoming more apparent is that ancient, sophisticated knowledge to provide resilient, renewable food is possibly the key to what we need to go forward. There's this great capacity in the in the knowledge that we diminished to actually take us forward into the future we're scared of.
2: Yeah, I can see a great synergy between what Bruce and Bill Gamage and people have opened up and some of this new thinking uh, taking us forward to a far greater resilient agriculture that uh, that rebuilds um, denuded soils. and uh, And the other big component of all this is uh, food off healthy, truly functioning
1: soils is so full of more nutrients. It's it's uh, it's, it's a huge health benefit. Well, that's one of the things that, and to come back to yams again, that that there was a that, that the soil was more friable. The soil was and, and and I'll get you to explain it, Bruce. But but people talking about being able to just run your forearm through soil that was so not compacted, it was so mm. humus full, filled and and loose and light and productive.
0: And every drop of rain that fell on that soil went straight into the ground um, whereas when the soils are compacted it runs off and mm. causes erosion. Um, uh, the, some of the early pioneers noticed that um, uh, 18 months after they would introduced sheep onto the country it had, the, that soil had been compacted so hard that runoff uh, began and Aboriginal people were astounded to see floods. Uh, because they, they hadn't been used to this kind of flooding and the damage that a flood can do. And so we need to look at the Australian soils and uh, think about uh, how how we can reclaim that knowledge and reclaim that fertility. Uh, a, a really good example of it was um, uh, Lynn and I were over in WA recently and w- we were talking about a thing that I'd mentioned in Dark Emu is that uh, L- Lieutenant Gray, the second worst, worst explorer in the world, um, when he was coming down through Western Australia, uh, came across these massive uh, yam fields that stretched to the horizon and he had to walk around them because they were too deeply tilled for him to walk across. And I I just replicated that into Dark Emu because it you know, was a valid... Uh, source, valid information but I kept on thinking to myself why would people till the soil that deeply and we were in Western Australia and an Aboriginal woman um, said well that's where the yam is the yam is deep for that particular um, uh, yam um, I keep on forgetting its name but the last Latin word in it is hastafolia it's Tuba is a metre and a half uh, down in the soil. So Europeans, um, when they realised that you know, perhaps the idea was to turn to Australian plants, they planted this as a, a monoculture and Aboriginal people had done the same. Uh, when the, the flowers had finished they realised they could harvest it. They brought in a normal harvester, a normal plough and they got no tubers. Uh, so then they brought in a chisel plough which dug deeper into the soil and they got no tubers and they were scratching their head about what had happened. Uh, then they brought in an excavator. Um, this is the one, this is the mechanical European mind at work. And then a metre and a half down, they turned up all these tubers. And this uh, Aboriginal lady said, well, that's what we used to do. We used to dig down a metre and a half with digging sticks. And these fields were so vast that you can imagine that those women, and they were women who were doing this work, um, they were digging across this field to the horizon, digging down a metre and a half, leaving these great swales right across the land to harvest this tuber. And because they were digging through it they were probably breaking off the root systems and they were growing again. Uh, So when they got to the horizon they'd turn around and come back. Um, And so that that that's the reason why the the soil was the tilth of the soil was so fine that you could run your fingers through it because it was so deeply tilled, and not all Australian soils were treated like that. Just particular soils, uh, because Aboriginal people had, had eighty thousand years to investigate how best um, to work those soils and which which plants to use, and some very obvious plants in Australia weren't. Um, favourites of Aboriginal people. They were targeting very difficult plants. I've got a yarn to tell you now which is very interesting and I'm insisting on telling it but um, (laughs) and I hope I get away with it. Um, I hope we get there in time. Yeah. Um, And so it was very important knowledge to learn that Aboriginal people had, had targeted that plant. And one of the other plants they targeted was kangaroo grass and kangaroo grass is very, very difficult to um, to remove the awn from the seed, and uh, we, we've been trying to make flour from it, and it's a difficult process. But to, just to show you how interesting life is, and how peculiar, and how you couldn't predict it in a fit, was that um, a woman in um, near where I live um, used to be the Scientist of the Year, the Engineer of the Year. Um, and she has offered to make us a machine to do that job. Um, but when that woman was born, she was a man. So I'm always stunned by the complexity of life and um, and completely thrilled by it. Uh, I'm, I'm going to have a beer to celebrate that woman tonight. Um because I didn't know that story until today, um, so there you go. I've, I've you managed go. to sneak it in. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. And I'm going to manage to sneak in that what I was going to drive at before is that, in according to a thing that you I heard you present, that yams, because they have fructans, 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 not fructose, are seven times more nutritious than potatoes,
0: and diabetic friendly and as diabetic a result. Friendly, yeah. yeah, and we we know nothing about them. One woman, Beth Gott. Um, in Victoria, has done the only real research on the yam daisy or murnong, and, um, you know, when we were in the West, people said, oh, can you send me some of those seeds for your murnong? And I said, no, find your own. Find them in Western Australia, because that yam uh, that those old people were growing is still growing there. It's Mm -hmm. growing in the footpath. Mm -hmm. And so all we need to do is to to return um, to the old practice, and we'll have this, Reliable supply of a very, very healthy plant, yeah. and the the moonong here is the same. We'll all be growing it in our backyards, like carrots, yeah. um, if if we choose to. Yep. Um, we j- we have to we do have to choose to do that.
1: Um, anything that you want, I'm going to ask you to kind of your sort of sort of final observations, in a sense. But I just wondered, was there anything off what Bruce has said that? Yeah, just, just listening to what he's saying
2: and um, how we need to approach this landscape with a totally new mind, uh, um, talking to um, indigenous friends of mine and, and, and reading some of the early settler reports, Major Mitchell's report of, of horses sinking to their fetlocks in soft, spongy soil. And, uh, <clears throat> the modern landscape manager has no conception of what it was like pre-white settlement, our landscape. The Things like incised creeks just didn't exist, as, as Bruce alluded to. Um, and, and I, having now if you like, had a, a turnaround from having made all the mistakes and now starting to look at the landscape differently. That's understanding how it functions with a few major functions which I described through the book. I would say with confidence that probably 98% of Australian farmers are landscape dyslexic. They, they cannot read the landscape and how it functions. And and if you can't do that, that's why you end up with the compacted soils. And, and farmers that I know, I've, I've heard three or four instances and witnessed it myself, were after five to eight years of regenerating through the new grazing or cropping or whatever. And, you know, Australia's not a land of gentle, soft rainfall like England. It, in, in much of it, it's, we don't get enough of it. When it comes, it's often hard and fast. So you want to make sure you, you capture it. Where farmers have regenerated land and say uh, I witnessed a six inch rain in uh, 24 hours. And I came home from town and witnessed one farm that that had been flogged and probably 50% ground cover. And at the two inch mark, a third of the way in, that water was running brown. So it was already taking a lot of topsoil. Um, The person that had 100% ground, uh, 100 ground cover and soft, deeper rooted through his regenerative practices... After six inches, uh, that landscape was just starting to trickle clear water. So in the driest continent on earth, the guy with the healthy regenerative practice had tripled his effective rainfall in that, that period and um, and we whinge about not getting enough rain. So it's a real mental flip on, on understanding how the landscape functions and how we can, we can regenerate
1: it. It occurs to me now that the horror with which Indigenous people must have seen what happened to their country mm. in the first couple of decades of European settlement must have just had the feeling of desecration. They mu- it must have been the most horrific experience mm. to see the the land that you had cared for at a deep spiritual level be so shockingly disregarded and destroyed. It, it's, it's sort of hard to imagine, isn't it? Mm. I mean... Maybe, maybe communities that have, have experienced devastating genocidal uh, events have some understanding, but I, I don't think I can understand it. But it must have been extraordinary and terrible.
0: Some of the early conversations Aboriginal people had with um, people around Melbourne when the first Europeans arrived in Melbourne was um, Aboriginal people wanted to know why white men didn't live with women uh, because they, the men arrived on their own. And the next part of the conversation was, why do you shit in the river? Because it was anathema to Aboriginal people (laughs) who used to bury their excrement all the time and be really fastidious about caring for the land in that way. And they were just astounded that you would even think of selling the water that you drink. Mm. And we still do it.
1: Um, We've got a few minutes left, so can I ask you both uh, uh, about optimism? Is because I know you've said, Bruce, that you know literally there's never been a better time. You, you feel that there's an opening now, that there's a receptivity in the community or, or parts of the community for a deeper understanding to emerge. So, are you fundamentally optimistic?
0: Yeah, I am. Um, um, I barrack for Richmond, and we're <laughs> um, the, the only way to survive. That is to be optimistic. Um, <laughs> Or masochistic. Per- perennially <laughs> disappointed, but um, always optimistic. But I've got three grandkids, they're beautiful kids, and I'm not going to tell them that the world is stuffed. Um, I'm, I'm going to tell them that they can do something about the world. Uh, they can do, do something to improve it. And I, I think humans are smart and they're basically good. Uh, we're deluded at the moment. We're being duped uh, by a system which rewards really bad behaviour. Um, you know, we we give knighthoods um, to people who sell dodgy milk to African children because they can't sell it in Australia. We give them knighthoods. We respect that. We think that's rat cunning and acceptable. We have to change our attitude to the truth and to the care of the land. Um, but we're smart, so we can do it. And the smart people have to stand up. They have to stand up to the idiots uh, who think they're smart. And we have to resist this awful um, way we use our own people and um, and the world and uh, uh, resist them. We have to put up a fight. We can't just sit back and say, I don't have to do anything because um, I'm an artist and I listen to classical music. That's not going to be cut it. Uh, you're actually going to have to do something. And... Uh, you're going to have to persist. You know, I was talking to my daughter this morning, who's um, trying to introduce Aboriginal culture into a school where one of my um, grandkids goes, and um, she was sad because she'd been knocked back by one of these Aboriginal programs. Um, that you know, trying to institute this Aboriginal program, she'd been knocked back, and I said, "Well, you just got to persist. The old people persisted. You're just going to have to keep going." And you, you might die persisting, um, but that'll be an honourable thing to do, my girl. There you go. Your,
1: one of your grandchildren, I know in, in your book, asked you when he or she, I'm not sure which it was, watching someone spray herbicide, asked you, Grandpa, why do we have to kill things to grow things?
2: Yeah, it really rocked me. We were going in with his father to watch him play soccer. It was my grandson. who was only about six and we watched this farmer spraying Roundup and he said, Grandpa, why do people have to kill things to grow things? And I was a specialist. It's a hell of a question. Uh, and my answer later was, well, you don't. don't have to kill things. But to answer the original point, um, I, I my book really is a paion of hope. Uh, the solutions are there, uh, both urban, by connecting through good food into urban food and uh, regenerating our landscapes, linking with the, uh, our... Um, 60,000, 70,000-year Indigenous knowledge, however long it is, it's opening up all the time. Um, okay, we're into the Anthropocene and we need to confront that, which none of our politicians are doing. But the, we do have the solutions and it's just a matter of now of um, of impl- implementing them. And and also in, in the... Um, in the um, journey of human affairs, sometimes when you get into great crisis, as occurs in a lot of natural systems, you can, you can have a tipping point. And that also is my hope, that at, at some stage uh, the general populace will, will revolt with our useless politicians and the uh, economic rationalist fossil capitalism that's really driving us to destruction and say, well look, there's got to be a better way. And um, so I'm hopeful
1: good, thank you. I'm going to ask um, you to hold your applause to the end because I just want to go through a couple of things. I firstly want to thank Greenstone and I want to thank Brook Farm for sponsoring this session. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to Bruce and to Charles. I want to thank my old buddy Andrew for doing the sound and Meredith and her volunteers for looking after us in the tent. Um, All of these people make these events possible, but very much I want to thank Bruce Pascoe and Charles Massey for a wonderful session. (laughs)
0: I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2017. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website byronwritersfestival.com.